in charge. Can we open our Bibles, please, to 2 Samuel, chapter 4? Second Samuel chapter 4, and we're just going to read, we'll just read verse 1 to start with uh, before we open in prayer. So Second Samuel chapter 4, verse 1, and when Saul's son heard that Abner was dead in Hebron, his hands were feeble and all the Israelites were troubled. Let's open up in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day. We thank you so much that we can gather in your house again. We thank you, Lord, that we can um, spend this time around your word. I do pray, Lord, that you would give me wisdom. and pray, Lord, that you would calm my nerves, give me understanding. I do pray, Lord, that um, as we look at this chapter in 2 Samuel, Lord, that it would be a blessing and an encouragement and a challenge to all of us here today, Lord. I do pray that you would just um, uh, work through this sermon, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you've ever heard of the saying, it's never right to do wrong to do right. It's a little bit confusing, I'll explain in a second, but I, I remember when I was a kid hearing it a few times, I think my father used to say it um, a fair bit, it's never right to do wrong to do right. In other words, it's never okay to do the wrong thing in order to do something right. Okay? That's basically what it's saying, but never right to do wrong to do right. Now, you can't do something wrong and then justify the wrong thing that you've done, justify the sin that you've done, saying that it was for a good reason. You know, you might want to get a loved one a nice gift. Nothing wrong with that. That's a really nice thing to do. But you can't go to the corner store and rob them for their money to buy that gift, or you can't go to the shops and steal that gift to give it to your loved one, can you? You're doing a good thing giving a loved one a gift, but you can't go about it the wrong way. You know, that's a bit of an extreme example, but it is thing, this type of thing does come up in our lives. Maybe it's lying to someone because you think it's going to help them or help somebody else. That's a bit of a more example that sort of fits in with our lives. You know, it might be the case that you know what career God wants you to have, what path he wants you to follow when you leave school or in your life, what job he wants you to have. And that might be God's will to get that position, to do that job, to, to go that, to that place. But does that mean that you can do whatever it takes to get there? Does that mean that you can cheat, lie, steal, deceive, whatever it takes to get that position? Does that mean that if you need to go to university, you can go to a university where the, you know there's no good church where you can serve God in order to follow that career path? No, it doesn't. Doing those sort of things, doing the wrong thing to accomplish something that's right, is never okay. We can't justify our sin by saying it's for good reasons. And there are examples in the Bible too. Abraham and Sarah, they made a decision to use Hagar to provide an heir, didn't they? God promised them with a son. That was God's will. That was a good thing. But they went about it the wrong way. They used Hagar to get that son that God promised them and it caused them all sorts of trouble. Or how about Saul making the sacrifice to God instead of waiting for Samuel like he was meant to? That's another example where that's a good thing, making the sacrifice to God, but he was meant to wait for Samuel and he didn't. He went about it the wrong way. So trying to do the right thing but doing something wrong in order to get there is never how God wants us to live. We can never justify our sin by saying it was for a good reason. 
So like I said at the start, it's never right to do wrong to do right. And there's a couple of people in this passage who pay the ultimate sacrifice to learn this lesson the hard way. We're going to look at two points here this morning. The first point we're going to look at in this chapter is the murder of Ishbosheth. In verse 1 again it says, And when Saul's son heard that Abner was dead in Hebron, his hands were feeble and all the Israelites were troubled. In this verse here we're told um, Saul's son. Now we're going to get a bit of a context here to remind you of where we're up to because it is a long time since we've looked at um, 2 Samuel. Ishbe- oh, sorry, the son of Saul that's um, commented on here is Ishbosheth. Okay? Now we looked last time or all the time before that Ishbosheth was probably an illegitimate son of Saul. Possibly the son of a concubine. He, he wasn't um, a legitimate son of Saul. I won't go into all the detail because we did look at that last time. Now when David or when Saul and his sons, including Jonathan, were killed in battle, David became king over Judah. It opened up the way for David to become king as God had promised, but he only became king over Judah is what we saw in chapter 2. Now when he became king over Judah, Ishbosheth, this man who's one of Saul's sons, was made king over the rest of Israel by a man named Abner. Now Abner we also read about in this verse who's, who's dead now. Abner was one of Saul's captains. He was Saul's basically general of his army, his right-hand man, someone who David had a couple of encounters with while Saul was pursuing him. And Abner did not like David at all. He didn't want David to be king over all of Israel. So instead, he set up Ishbosheth as the king of the rest of Israel. Okay, so we've got the nation now divided. We've got David as king over Judah, and we've got Ishbosheth king over the rest of Israel, set up by this man named Abner. So that's, that's sort of where, where we're roughly up to. And when we looked at this part of the story in chapter 2, we also saw that Ishbosheth, he was probably just a puppet for Abner. The real authority in that part of the kingdom was coming from Abner. Everybody feared Abner. The Israelites feared Abner. Even Ishbosheth feared Abner. Everyone was scared of him. And so he was really running the kingdom. He was using Ishbosheth as his puppet. Ishbosheth was quite a weak man. And so he set him up as king, knowing he could control him. Abner was really in charge of this kingdom. And we sort of see in chapter 3, verse 11, the type of fear. This is um, talking about Ishbosheth. He says, And he could not answer Abner a word again because he feared him. That shows you the type of fear that even Ishbosheth had. That, there was a bit of a standoff between the two and a bit of a conflict. But Ishbosheth was so afraid of Abner, he couldn't even, couldn't even talk to him again. Okay? He feared him. So now, though, Abner has died. Abner's been killed. Okay, he's been put to death. We saw that in that chapter also that Ishbosheth offended Abner. Okay, Abner decided he didn't like him as king anymore. Sorry, this is a bit before Abner died. I'm sort of getting ahead of himself. Before Abner died, Ishbosheth offended him. He came and accused him of doing something wrong, and Abner said, "I didn't do that. How dare you?" Abner then said, "Hang on, I don't like you as king anymore. I'm going to change my mind. I'm not backing you as king." And he had a new plan. His plan was to go and make David king over all Israel, just as God had promised, which Abner knew about. If we have a look in verse, in chapter 3, we're going back to chapter 3, have a look in verses 17 to 19. Abner came to all the elders of Israel in this part of the passage, and he said to Abner, Abner, I'm going to take, or he said to Ishbosheth, I'm going to take the kingdom from you, give it to David, as God had said. And in verse 17, we read, And Abner had communication with the elders of Israel, saying, Ye sought for David in times past to be king over you. Now do it. Now then do it. 
For the Lord hath spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David will I save my people Israel out of the hand of the Philistines and out of the hand of all their armies. And Abner also spake in the years of Benjamin, and Abner went also to speak in the years of David in Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel, and that seemed good to the whole house of Benjamin. So Abner had a plan. He didn't like his Pesheth, doesn't want him as king anymore because he had a confrontation with him. He's going to now set up David as king, take the kingdom off his Pesheth, give it to David just as God had promised. And we're not told how he was going to do this, but that was his plan. And he's gone and told all of Israel about this plan. He's told the elders about the plan. He actually went and talked to David prior to that and told David his plan and David gave him his permission. He said, yep, that, that's fine. Go and talk to the Israelites and, and make it happen. And this was um, his working. Now, it all seemed to be going very well. Abner was stirring up the people to make David king, but then he was murdered by David's nephews. And that was revenge for killing their brother, Asael, which um, David did not approve of, and he condemned them for. And that's where we continue our story. And I feel in all that background, it's a bit confusing, but that's where we're up to in our story. Without that sort of prior knowledge, it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So this is where our story continues in verse 1. When Saul's son Ishbosheth heard that Abner was dead in Hebron, his hands were feeble and all the Israelites were troubled. When he hears of Abner's death in Hebron, when he was murdered, Ishbosheth became feeble. His hands were feeble. This means that he lost heart. He was discouraged and he was fearful. He became really weak and troubled. But this is because the man that was the power behind his reign was now gone. Not only had Abner turned against him and said he didn't want him to be king anymore Abner was now dead and Abner was the only reason Ishbosheth was king in the first place even Ishbosheth was scared of Abner remember all the people were scared of Abner sort of if Abner said jump you said how high you went and did it he was obviously a very scary man now that Abner was dead all of Ishbosheth's power was gone okay he was Abner was really the one ruling the kingdom so this meant that Ishbosheth was alone and he was weak and all of his followers, all of Israel, they were only following because of Abner and now Abner's gone. So he would have feared what might happen to him, also knowing what Abner's been doing. Abner's been going around to all of Israel telling them that we need to take the kingdom off Ishbosheth and give it to David. He would have been fearful of what's happening. It also says all the Israelites were troubled at the end of verse 1 there. And this is because Israel was on board with Abner's plan, ready to follow him in making David king, but... Now he's gone. Their leader was gone. So this means there's confusion among the Israelites. They didn't know what step to take or how to continue. They didn't know who would continue Abner's work. Then we read in verse 2 to 3. This is where our story really gets started. We'll read verses 2 to 3 and then 5 to 7. We're going to skip 4 at the moment. And Saul's son had two men that were captains of bands. The name of one was Baana and the name of the other Rechab. The sons of Rimon of a Beerothite of the children of Benjamin. For Beeroth was reckoned to Benjamin, and the Beerothites fled to Gittim and were sojourners there unto this day. And Jonathan, oh, we'll skip verse 4, we'll come back to that. Verse 5. And the sons of Rimon, the Beerothite, Rechab and Baana, went and came about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who lay on a bed at noon. And they came thither into the midst of the house as they thought, sorry, as though they would have fetched wheat, and they smote him under the fifth rib. And Rechab and Baana, his brother, escaped. But when they had come into the house and, and lay on his bed, sorry, and lay on his bed in his bedchamber, 
they smote him and slew him and beheaded him and took his head and got them away through the plain all night. We're told here that Ishbosheth had two captains of bands. Now this means that they were either captains of troops in the army, captains over a small section of their of his army, or they were guards or in charge of guards um, for Ishbosheth's personal guards. Either way, they were direct direct servants of Ishbosheth. Now we're also told in these verses that they were part of the tribe of Benjamin. Now this detail, commentators believe, is added for two reasons. Firstly, Saul was also of the tribe of Benjamin, so that means that Ishbosheth is a Benjaminite. And these two men are also of the tribe of Benjamin. So this adds to the aggravation of this crime. They killed their fellow, um, someone from their fellow tribe. The other possible reason why this detail is included is that in chapter 3, when we read that um, Abner talks to Israel, we're told a couple of times that he speaks to the ears of Benjamin, so all the tribe of Benjamin, and gets them on board with the plan. So possibly um, all of Benjamin thought maybe it was their responsibility to take the kingdom from Ishbosheth and give it to David. Now, whatever the reason is, these men were Benjamites, Benjaminites, the same as Ishbosheth, and they they killed their fellow tribesmen here. Okay, killed someone for their from their own um, tribe. These two men, Rechab and Baana, they came into Ishbosheth's house in the heat of the day. We're told, which was in the middle of the day at noon, and Ishbosheth was having a nap. Now, when I first read this, I thought, oh, how lazy. He's a king and he's having a nap in the middle of the day. However, um, when I researched, apparently that was not unusual at all at that time, especially on warmer days, on hot days. Kings would often have a nap in the middle of the day. So this was not unusual. Because this wasn't an unusual thing, this may also mean that Rechab and Baana probably knew that he would be having a nap. If this was something that he did daily, they knew that he'd probably be having a sleep in his bedchamber they probably knew that that was the best time for them to carry out their plan to kill him. You know, they came in, we're told, pretending to be fetching wheat out of the king's granaries. Um, and it says that in verse 6, And they came thither into the midst of the house as though they would have fetched wheat. Now, what this means is though they would have fetched wheat, they were coming, they were pretending they were coming in order to get wheat or grain or corn in order to pay the troops that they were in charge of which is how the troops often got paid back then. They get paid in food, in corn or grain or wheat. So the people in charge of them, the captains of their, of their well, army or troops, they would go into the king's um, granary, wherever he stored the food, and they would go and grab the grain and, and take it in sacks or whatever they did and pay their men, that way pay their soldiers. So for them to come in asking that for grain as though they would fetch grain is nothing unusual. So that's how they got in so close. And a lot of commentators even believe that the um, granaries where they kept these would have been very close oftentimes to the king's bedchambers even. So it would have been quite easy for them to get in. Also being soldiers and being captains and troops, they were captains in Ishbosheth's army. No one's going to question them when they're coming in to get some grain or question them when they're going in to see the king or whatever it is. So these men got in pretty easily into his bedchamber. You know, once they got in, the king was sleeping and we're told that they killed him by stabbing him under the fifth rib and then they beheaded him. Being stabbed under the fifth rib, it seems to be the killing of choice in 2 Samuel. If you want to kill someone in 2 Samuel, that's how to do it, apparently. Um, Asael, David's nephew, he was killed by Abner by being slain under the fifth rib and his, the spear actually came out his back. It was quite hard. Um, that was under the fifth rib. Abner. 
he was killed by David's nephews. He was stabbed under the fifth rib. And now Ishbosheth, he was also killed being stabbed under the fifth rib. And later on in 2 Samuel, someone else is also killed under the fifth rib. Seems to be the way to go. Um, the research I did, I thought, why, why under the fifth rib? Why is this mentioned so many times? And from what I could make out and what the commentator said, it seems like that simply means that he was stabbed in the heart. That's where the heart is the closest to the rib cage, apparently. And so that would be stabbed in the heart, which if you want to make sure someone's not going to get up from a stab wound, I suppose that's where you've got to stab them, isn't it? So the, I suppose this detail is there to make sure that we understand that these wounds are fatal, okay? He actually actually killed him by stabbing him under the fifth rib. They also then beheaded Ishbosheth, which seems a bit extreme, but this was a very important part of their plan, which we're about to see. They probably hid his head in one of the sacks that they were collecting grain in, supposedly, and they took off with the head and escaped with it. Have a look in verse 8 then, what they do with the head. And this is why this is a very important part of their plan. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth unto David to Hebron and said to the king, Behold, the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, thine enemy, which sought thy life. And the Lord hath avenged my lord the king this day of Saul and of his seed. These men thought they'd done a pretty, pretty good thing here. They proudly came to Hebron, came to David, and proudly in front of David, I can just imagine they pulled out the head and, David, look what we've done. They were very happy with themselves, very proud. Proud as punch they were. They said, we've, we've got proof. We've killed Ishbosheth, and here is his head as proof. That's why they took the head. They wanted proof. And they said to David, we have slain Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, thine enemy. They brought it to David as a trophy, thinking that they would be rewarded for what they've done. There's a major problem with their thinking, though, and a major problem with the statement, Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, thine enemy. Saul, he saw David as his enemy, didn't he? He tried to murder him for years and years and years. Did David, though, see Saul as his enemy? No. David never saw Saul like that. David never said, Saul is my enemy. We can tell that from the way after Saul died, the song that David wrote about Saul, the way David mourned about Saul, the way David spared Saul's life. We can tell David never saw him as an enemy. What did David see him as? God's anointed. That's what David saw Saul as. God's anointed and he would not lift his hand against God's anointed. All those times that he had a chance to kill Saul, he could have killed him in the cave, he could have killed him when they snuck down to the camp, but he didn't because he said, I will not raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. He said, vengeance is for God, not for man. So there was a big problem in um, these two men's thinking here. David did not see Saul as an enemy like they thought. You know, these men, they even go on to say that this is God's will and God's work. It says at the end of verse 8 there, it says, which um, sort of life, and the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, means it's talking about God. The Lord hath avenged my Lord the King this day of Saul and of his seed. They said, David, this is God's will. God's done this. We've done this for God. We've killed Saul for you, ended his seed, or killed Ishbosheth, Saul's son, ended his seed. There you go. We've done it for you, thinking that they'd done a great thing. You know, however, these men, they weren't acting under the command of God. They weren't doing God's will at all. They were acting under their own wisdom, maybe even for selfish reasons. Maybe they thought if they did this and brought this head to David, they could be rewarded. They knew David was going to be king. Maybe this would get them some sort of bumping up in the chain. Maybe they'd have a, a prominent position under David's reign if they did this for David. 
you know, whatever the, whatever their thinking behind this was, it wasn't the right thing to do and they definitely weren't under, acting under God's will. You know, they did do this, however, because they were trying to accomplish something good. There was some right in this. There was for a good reason. This is why they went through so much effort. If we have a look, they went about it the wrong way, but they were trying to do it for the right reason. <clears throat> so back in chapter 3, when Abner stirred up the people with his plan to make David king, he said to the elders, uh, which we, oh, sorry, we already read that. We'll go back to verse 9 and 10. This is what he said to Ishbosheth. In verse 9 in chapter 3, this is what Abner said. It said, And so do God to Abner and more also, except as the Lord hath sworn to David. This is as the Lord promised to David, even so I do to him. So what the Lord's promised to David, I'm going to do to David. To translate or take the kingdom from the house of Saul and to set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan even to Beersheba. In these verses, Abner has said, just as God promised, I'm going to do. I'm going to take the kingdom from you, Ishbosheth, and give it to David. And then it also says down in verse 17 and 18, when he talked to the elders, we've already read these, we'll read it again. And Abner had communication with the elders of Israel, saying, You saw for David in times past to be king over you. Now then do it. For the Lord hath spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people out of Israel of the hand of the Philistines and out of the hand of all their enemies. This was God's will. It was God's will for David to be king. We know that. When David was a young boy, he was anointed as king over Israel. It was God's will one day for him to be king. We knew that. Israel knows that. Abner knows that. Ishbosheth knew that. Everybody knows that it's God's will for him to be king. You know, when um, he told the people that setting up David as king is God's will, he also told them that it came with the promise which is what we read in verse 18. It came with the promise that um, from God, I will save my people Israel out of the hand of the Philistines and out of the hand of all their enemies. He told the people that it came with a promise from God. And Israel was now ready for it. Israel wanted David to be their king. We're told the elders wanted David to be king for a long time, but it hadn't happened. But now was the time and everybody wanted David to be king. Abner had stirred up the people to accept this. Now that Abner was dead though, the people were troubled, they lost confusion, they didn't know what to do. These two men, Baana and Rechab, they took it upon themselves to remove this obstacle of David becoming king. Ishbosheth was the final obstacle in David becoming king, and they took it upon themselves to remove that obstacle and make way for David to become king. They were trying to accomplish God's will for him, weren't they? They knew what God's will was, they knew what God's plan was, that God wants us to go in this direction. We're going to do whatever it takes to get there, even if it means murdering someone. They were trying to do the right thing, but they went about it the wrong way. You know, in verse 4, we're told that there was another rightful heir to the throne. We're just going to very quickly look at before we look at our second point. It says in verse 4 in chapter 4, And Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son that was lame of his feet. When he was five years old, when the tidings came of Saul and Jonathan out of Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled, and it came to pass as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now there was another rightful heir to the throne before David could take it whose name was Mephibosheth. However, when he was five years old, we're told in this verse, his maid uh, picked him up and was running with him when they heard about Saul and Jonathan being killed in battle. Um, she's tripped and fallen and he's become lame. We're not told how, possibly 
um, broken feet, broken legs that never healed, possibly spinal injury, maybe paraplegic. We're not told how, but he became lame. Now, this verse and this detail is included in here to show us that Mephibosheth is now no longer um, included in the kingly line. He was not fit to rule as king according to their customs in their time, so he was removed from the kingly line. And this verse is included in here to show to us that Ishbosheth is indeed the final obstacle for David to become king, which sort of adds to the thinking of why Rechab and Bianna went through so much effort to kill Ishbosheth and murder him. You know, and it says at the end of that verse in verse 8, it says that they've not only killed um, Ishbosheth, but they've ended Saul's seed. It says, end, his, end of his seed. So this proves to us that after Ishbosheth, there's no one in line for the throne. It's all clear for David. You know, so these men, they wanted to do God's will, but they did it the wrong way. You know, yes, God used this act to put David on the throne, but it was not okay for these men to murder Ishbosheth, even if it was for the right reason. Now, just quickly, we're going to look at the judgment. This is my second point, the judgment. This one's not as long as the first one, I promise. Let's have a look at verses 9 to 12 now in our chapter 4. It says, And David answered Rechab and Bayana his brother, and the sons of Rimon the Beathite, and said unto them, As the Lord liveth, who hath redeemed my soul out of all adversity, when one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good tidings, I took hold of him and slew him in Ziklag, who thought that I would have given him a reward for, such, for his tidings. How much more, when wicked men have slain a righteous person in his own house upon his bed? Shall I not therefore now require his blood of your hand and take you away from the earth? And David commanded these young men, and they slew them and cut off their hands and their feet and hanged them over the pool, um, hanged them up over the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the sepulchre of Abner in Hebron. Pretty gruesome chapter, this, isn't it? After Rechab and Bayana present David with Ishbosheth's head, like I said, they would have been expecting a reward, thinking they've done something really good and they've come very proud to David. But instead, David tells them a bit of a story. He starts his story by letting them know that this story is true. It's a true story, it's not made up. This is truth, what he says in verse 9. And David answered Rechab and Baana, his brothers, sons of Rimon of Beathite, and said unto them, As the Lord liveth. He's saying this story is as true as God is alive. And then he also lets them know that he relies on God to take care of his troubles. At the end of that verse says, As the Lord liveth, who hath redeemed my soul out of all adversity. David's sort of setting up the story here, giving a bit of a heads up of what this story is going to be like. He's saying... Okay, you've done this for me, however, what I'm about to tell you is a true story. It's as true as God is. And also, by the way, God takes care of my adversities. God's in charge. Sort of sets them up for a bit of a gulp moment, doesn't it? Like, oh no, what's coming? And then David goes on to tell them the story. You know, he starts the story, he tells them the story about when he was in Ziklag at the time of Saul and his son's death, including Jonathan. You know, they were fighting against the Philistines and then they died. Now, I'm not going to go back and read the whole account to you, but basically at the end of 1 Samuel, we're told the Philistines killed Saul's sons and then Saul was wounded by an arrow. Saul was fearful of the Philistines coming and capturing him and doing who knows what to him. So he decided he wanted to um, end his life before the Philistines got there. He asked his armour bearer to kill him and end his life. His armour bearer said, no, I'm not going to kill you. I can't do that. 
So we're told at the end of 1st Samuel that Saul fell on his own sword. That means that Saul killed himself. We're then told that his armor bearer, seeing Saul dead, killed himself. So now Saul and his armor bearer, all Saul's three legitimate sons are all dead. Yeah, after, uh, that's what, how we're told things happened in the end of verse 2, uh, sorry, end of 1st Samuel. In 2nd Samuel then, we're told that an Amalekite comes to David with news of Saul being dead. And he comes to David with Saul's crown and bracelet and he tells him a slightly different story. He tells David that he saw Saul fall on his sword, so saw saw Saul trying to kill himself. He then says that Saul didn't actually die and that when he got there, this Amalekite, Saul said to him, please kill me so the Philistines can't get to me. And so then he kills Saul apparently. Okay. Now we're not exactly sure which one is the truth, whether, whether yes, Saul did kill himself but maybe he didn't quite die and the Amalekite finished him off um, or whatever it is. I'm inclined to believe that Saul did die, that he, he ended his life, he was dead, his armour bearer saw him die, then killed himself and that this um, Amalekite who's come is just an opportunist. That's my opinion. You can differ with me if you like but that's how I see this um, story going. I, I believe that this Amalekite's come, seen Saul dead, taken his crown, taken his bracelet to go and show David, thinking, hey, if I claim that I've killed David, or that I've killed Saul, I'm going to be rewarded from David. Similar thinking to Rechab and Bayana. That's how I believe this story went. And from what David's answer is, that's how David, or, well, David thinks he killed him, but that's how I sort of think this went, that he was an opportunist. Either way, whether he killed him or not, he takes David's crown and bracelet, uh, Saul's crown and bracelet, sorry, brings it to David, and he lied and brags to David about killing him, hoping he would be rewarded. Yeah, but David was not impressed. Have a look in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel. Chapter 1, verses 13 to 16. This is David's answer to this man. And David said unto the young man that told him, Whence art thou? And he answered, I am the son of a stranger, an Amalekite. And David said unto him, how wast thou not afraid to stretch forth thine hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? He said to him, how come you weren't scared to kill God's anointed? That's what he asked him. And he says, and David called one of the young men and said, go near and fall upon him. And he smote him that he died. And David said unto him, thy blood be upon thy head, for thy mouth hath testified against thee, saying, I have slain the Lord's anointed. So David wasn't impressed at all with this man saying he killed Saul. He ended up killing this man because he'd said he'd murdered Saul. You know, this is what we're also told in, our, in the chapter, in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 10. He says, When one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good tidings, I took hold of him and slew him in Ziklag, who thought that I would have given him a reward for his tidings. Exact same story of what's happened with Rechab and Bayana. You know, by now, I reckon Rechab and Bayana, they've seen, heard this story from Samuel, uh, from David, about how he's slain this man from the Amalekite, and they're probably really nervous now, thinking, oh dear. Last time this happened with someone thinking they're going to get a reward, they were killed. What's coming our way? You know, and, and the same punishment was there for them. Verses 11 to 12 says, How much more when wicked men have slain righteous person in his own house upon his bed? Shall I not therefore now require his blood on your head, hand and take you away from the earth? And David commanded these young men and they slew him and cut off their hands and their feet and they hanged them up over the pool in Hebron. 
but they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the sepulchre of Abner in Hebron. Now, even though Ishbosheth was not the Lord's anointed as such, like Saul was, David had thoroughly learned through his hard life that vengeance was God's, that God was in control and it was not his place to take vengeance. He tells these men that if the Amalekite died for killing Saul on the battlefield, then they must die for killing what he calls a righteous man, someone in his own bed. Now, where it says killing a righteous man here is not talking about a sinless man. It's talking about someone that didn't deserve to die. He wasn't on the battlefield fighting. Um, these two men, Rechab and Bayana, weren't soldiers fighting against an enemy of God and they've, and they've slain him as an enemy of God. That's not what happened. He was on his bed napping. He was still the king and they've murdered him. They've murdered their um, fellow Israelite, a fellow Benjaminite. You know, this was for no just reason. And that's why it said killed a righteous man. You know, they were murderers who deserved just punishment. You know, all through the Old Testament, through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, we're told verses like this. Genesis 9, 6 says, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. God stated in the law that the punishment for murder was death. They had to be put to death. And that's what David does here. David made a public example of these two men. He had their hands and their feet cut off. He had them killed and then he hung them above the pool in Hebron for everybody to see. This is quite a strong statement from David. A statement saying that as king he will not tolerate people doing the wrong thing in order to do something even if it is right. He will not tolerate murder. You know, Rechab and Bayana thought David would be pleased with what they had done. But they misunderstood David's loyalty to God and the house of Saul. You know, David was loyal to his pledge to honour and preserve Saul's family and descendants. Back in 1 Samuel 24, one of the times David spared Saul's life, Saul said to him, David, I know you're going to be king. Spare me and my family one day. And David promised him. David made that promise that he would not lift his hand against Saul's seed and his family, and he didn't. He kept that promise. Yeah, David wanted all of Israel to know that he would not condone sin in order to accomplish God's will. David wanted God to act and God to fulfill his will, not, not us, not man's sinful ways to fulfill it. Yeah, David had learned through his hard life that if, God, if, it, that if it's, God's place to take, it's God's place to take vengeance, sorry, not man's and that God's ways are best. You know, we have an all-powerful God, don't we? He doesn't need us to go about doing the wrong thing, doing sin in order to help him accomplish his will. God doesn't need that. You're wrong is always wrong. Sin is always sin. It doesn't matter what the reasoning is. It doesn't matter if you're doing it for a good reason, for the right reason. It doesn't matter if you're doing it to fulfill God's will. Sin is always sin. Wrong is always wrong. We can't justify our sin by saying it was for God's will. It's to accomplish what God wants or it's for a good reason. It's to help someone. You know, this lesson cost Rechab and Bayana their lives. Let's learn from their mistake. Make sure we don't try and justify wrongdoings in our lives because they are done for the right reason. You know, it's never right to do wrong to do right. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day again. We thank you for this chance we've had to uh, study out this chapter. Lord, do pray you'd help us to remember in our lives, Lord, this, this saying that it's never right to do wrong to do right. And these two men, they paid the ultimate sacrifice. Lord, I pray you'd help us to learn from this lesson that 
We can't justify our sin. We can't justify our wrongdoings just because they're for a good reason or because we think they'll help you or accomplish your will. Help us to remember, Lord, that sin is always sin and it always displeases you. But we thank you again for this day and ask you to bless the rest of our time together. In Jesus' name, amen.